audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. True Grit, that's the title of the sermon today. And how in the world can you talk about True Grit and not talk about Rooster Cogburn? I mean, seriously. Do you, do you know who I'm talking about? Rooster Cogburn. I see a few of you like, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about, preacher. Uh, and some of you, when I say Rooster Cogburn, your mind's going to go one direction, and some of you, it might have a little to do with the seasoning that JB was talking about that you have, um, the number of years you have, the number of gray hairs that's growing every day on my head um, that you have. And, and so you might go to the Duke, all right, John Wayne. That's where your mind goes when I say Rooster Cogburn. Now, some of you others, your mind might go to might go to Jeff Bridges. A little bit different, you know. Now, the, the crazy thing about this, as I was as I was preparing for this week and actually thinking about the movie True Grit a little bit, um, it's I just can't believe that that remake came out over ten years ago now. I mean. Time's just going so much faster. It is insane. But that's a whole different story. So if, if we were to have a debate, let's say you've got a little more gray hair on your head than I do. And let's say, and I'm not putting myself here, okay? But let's just say that I was, I was, in, the, I was in the Jeff Bridges camp right here. And you're over here in the Duke camp, you know, John Wayne camp saying, well, who, who in real life had more grit? You know, you know. Well, I think I think it's the Duke. I think it's John Wayne. I, I like what he stood for. All those different things. This is an interesting thing about it. Jeff Bridges is the one who actually served in the military. He was in the Coast Guard for for seven years. So that's interesting enough. I will tell you this: regardless of which camp you fall into, John Wayne camp or the Jeff Bridges camp, neither one of them, I'm guessing, had the intestinal fortitude of that fictional character. Rooster Cogburn. Does anybody know anybody named? I'm not talking about a nickname. I'm talking about named Rooster. I mean, seriously. There's just something about that that's like, man, there's some grit there. There's some grit. There really is. Here's something about, a little more serious note, a little something about grit. Often grit is related to solving a problem or problems that others want nothing to do with. In Rooster's case, it was going and bringing someone to justice, a killer to justice. Problems that others are like, nah, I think I'm going to stay back and let somebody else take care of that one. You know what? These Bibles that we hold in our hands, which, which is history, keep that in mind. It's words of life for sure, but there's history here as well. And, and what we need to understand is this. This is full of grit. I mean, this Bible is full of people of grit that was a part of their character, a part of their makeup. We're going to take a page out of history, as I've already told you. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of the Old Testament. I've got to set this up just a little bit. All right? God's people, the people of Israel, you get partway through the Old Testament, a significant way through it, and you find that they become divided. All right? You have a northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom... Now, this is way simplifying too much, all right? But that northern kingdom in the day of Jesus would become of what we kind of call Samaria, that, that was called at that time. Um, the southern kingdom was the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom, king after king after king, they did not honor God. 
None of them. I mean, they were batting zero, okay? Kind of like the Kansas City Royals. No, just kidding. They actually won last night. Anyway, but, all right. So, so that's what you have, okay, amongst the northern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom are a little more of a roller coaster ride. There were good kings and there were bad kings. And when there was a good king, the nation, now maybe not wholeheartedly, but the nation would follow in the ways of God, follow the law, the ways of Moses through whom God brought the law. But even, so, so you've, got, you've got the northern kingdom. They did not last as long as the southern kingdom. God said, you don't turn your ways around, it's, it's going to end for you. And the nation of Assyria came and carried them off into captivity. Now Judah lasted a little bit longer. But they too would fall to another nation at the work of God. And that nation was Babylon. And God predicted all of this. God made all of this known. He said, you will be there as exiles for a period of 70 years before you go back home again. You know, Bible scholars, they don't doubt the legitimacy of what happens here, but it's just a little confusing when you try to put the timeline together because it's not just Babylon. The reign of Babylon was broken down amongst other nations, and it gets a little bit confusing. You've got the Chaldean Babylonian Empire. You've got the Medo-Persian Babylonian Empire. You've got these things taking place. And then on top of it, you have kings and king titles that sometimes get interchanged and it gets confused. Okay, so who was the king at this time and who was the king at this time? It's a little confusing when you try to put the chronological order to it. But what isn't debated, what isn't in doubt is this. Jerusalem, in the end, was rebuilt. God said it was going to be. And God is faithful to the promises that he makes his people. All right, so I'm trying to put this together very, very quickly here. After a period of exile and 70 years, at the bidding of God, God put this into the heart of the king at the time. His name was Cyrus. And he put into his heart that he was going to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. And not only that, it would be the start of things happening there. The temple begun to be built. Now understand something. This is important to what we're looking at today. Not everybody went back. There were a number of people, including our main character today, who didn't go back to Jerusalem. They remained in Babylon. But Cyrus, he opens up. He says they can return. He even gave the articles that were stolen from the temple of God. He gave them back. Well, in order to give them back, you've got to have a place to put them. So a guy by the name of Zer... Of, of, okay, I'm going I'm to butcher this, all right? Zerubbabel. Okay, you don't hear quite as much about him in this story. But when this is all taking place and Cyrus is sending them back, he got the job of going back and beginning the rebuilding of not the walls of Jerusalem, but the temple. Okay? Now this would last over a long period of time, in excess of 100 years here, for this to take place. And in light of the length of time, the opposition, the red tape that all of these leaders, Zerubbabel included, Zerubbabel included, I'll say his name different every single time. It took a long time. There was opposition. There were things going on to get that temple rebuilt. And in light of that, you get to the latter part of that, a guy by the name of Nehemiah shows up. A guy by the name of Ezra shows up. It is amazing, in light of all of that, how quickly the walls of Jerusalem go up. 
You've heard me talk about this before. You've probably heard other teachers and preachers talk about this before. When the walls were built, rebuilt there at Jerusalem, Nehemiah was a big part of this. And as those walls were being built, it's like the definition of grit. This is the way the people built. They had hammers in one hand. You know what they had in the other? Sword. Exactly right. They had hammers and swords. They had to watch each other's backs because they had to fight while they were building. Fight the opposition. Guys, that is like the definition of grit. Somebody, I like, I've got to literally keep a weapon in one hand while I build with the other. I mean, that's a tough scenario taking place right there, okay? This is the definition of grit. In the middle of all of this, I believe truly that we can learn something from this Nehemiah fella about solving big problems. Now, as you end chapter one, Begin chapter 2, you'll find out something about Nehemiah. He is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. The cupbearer. And let me tell you something about Nehemiah. Um, let's just jump into the middle of this, of this story. He's in a place of high position. He's in a place of privilege. Okay? God went about bringing him there, but he also got there, I would say, by favor of the king as well as some hard, good old-fashioned hard work. He's in that place, and this is what he hears. We're going to begin in Nehemiah 1, verse 1. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hilkaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa the capital that Han and I, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The first thing we're going to see about this information that Nehemiah receives is that he is a leader who was moved by compassion. As I've already told you, Nehemiah was comfortable. He was in a very high position. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. He was born and raised in the Babylonian Empire. He's not somebody that was ripped from his home. That happened well before he was ever born. He was born in Babylon. And he was in a place of privilege. But he did not forget his roots, the roots of his people, and more importantly, he did not forget his God. You know, many of you know that I'm, I'm a big fan of Larry Osborne. He's a preacher out in Southern California. Um, a great preacher. I like to hear it because he's so practical in his teaching. And I listen to him quite a bit. Um, he's kind of claimed to fame where he kind of became more and more known to people. Is He wrote a book. He actually preached a series of sermons about it. And then he wrote a book from the notes of that sermon series. And the book is entitled this, Thriving in Babylon. And it's about the prophet Daniel, and about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others with them who are ripped from their home, placed in this Babylonian evil empire, and yet they thrived. They didn't just survive. These guys thrived. And in the midst of that, they never forgot who God was, and they always took a stand for what was right and what really mattered. I imagine Nehemiah is somewhat following in those lines. Like I said, he's in a place of privilege, but he did not forget his roots. And when he hears about the state of affairs in Jerusalem, he didn't just turn off the news. Is anybody at that point? I'm there. 
I mean, I did it quite a few months ago. Like, I don't want to hear the news. I don't want to see the news. All it does, you can ask my daughter, is put me in a bad mood. All right? It puts me in a very bad mood. And I just don't like it. It's like, I got I to take it in small little increments. All right? So I don't get caught up in the middle of all of it. This is interesting, though. It had been so very easy for the position that Nehemiah was in to just turn the station. Just turn it off. But he didn't. And let's see what happens when he hears the news of Jerusalem. Look to verse 4. It says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Then catch this. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, this man was, he was a leader, but he was compassionate. And the hurt of his people hurt him. And it moved him to action. But another thing we see about Nehemiah, besides just the compassion that was within him, is this. He was grounded by humility. You know, some of you, some of you know the man I'm speaking of. Many of you do. It wasn't that many years ago that, that he left this world. His name is Lee Long. Lee. Um, and... and Lee was an interesting guy. He was, he was quite a fellow. He usually sat right back there is where he sat every single Sunday. Let me tell you something about Lee. I love to hear the guy pray. If, if you never had the opportunity to hear Lee pray, you missed out. Because I, I even asked him one time, I was like, Lee, do you, do you like practice that? Which sounds strange coming from a preacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I practice, I pray. Oh, okay, good. Now, it was just so, it was almost poetic. I mean, it was, it was, it was something. I love I love to hear him pray. There's something about prayer we need to understand. Many times we put prayer into the wrong category. We put it into the category of responsibility. Like it's something we're supposed to do. That is not the right category. Prayer is a privilege. The opportunity to, become, to come before the creator God and have his attention. Which is what this tells us we do in prayer. The prayer offered through the spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ, our mediator. It is a privilege. And those who do it well, they do it well because they practice. A little bit of repetition here. Let me tell you something about Nehemiah. This fella knew how to pray. Maybe more importantly, he knew the vital importance of position when it came to prayer and I'm not talking about physical position I'm not saying that's not important you know I I heard from from a missionary many many years ago that a tribe that he worked amongst in northern Africa he said that they had the practice they would do 24 hours of prayer quite regularly and it would be included with fasting it's something that they did and the elders of their village which is kind of interesting would pray for their people and they prayed on their knees you know why because it hurt so bad it kept them awake So there's something to be said for that, all right? Uh, Look at Jesus. Jesus in the garden, when he prayed that prayer, that incredible prayer, that we're so glad that the right outcome came for that prayer, when he said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember the position he was in when he prayed that? He was on his face on the ground. But I'm not talking here about physical position. What I'm talking about is this. Nehemiah understood his position before 
God. And fasting probably had a little something to do with that. So let's take a look at it, beginning with verse 5. We are told in verse 4 that he prayed. In verse 5, we get the content. And this is how Nehemiah prayed. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So right off the bat, he puts God in his proper place. Great, awesome, above all, everything. You are supreme. Then he continues on. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. And catch where he goes next. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. He's like pointing the finger, right? Yeah, they've sinned against you, Lord. They have. No, keep reading. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. In other words, Nehemiah makes it very clear where his position is. His position is down here. And his failure to honor God and the failure of his brothers to honor God has put him and them, all of them, in that position. God, you are up here. We are down here. And we are sorry. Let's continue on. Verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that's exactly what has taken place. If you like to write in your Bible, underline the first word of verse 9. He says, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to reveal your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. You see, this is a prayer of humility. This is the prayer of someone who says, God, you are here and I am here and without you, I got no chance. I got no chance when I come before this man and the man he's talking about is the king, King Artaxerxes. And he says, God, Grant this man compassion. Give me compassion through him. You see, Nehemiah knew who was really in charge. And when you see this, you see a humble man. You see a broken man. And that doesn't always line up with what you think about of having grit on the inside. But I beg to differ. I think the Bible paints a different picture. So you have a guy who, who is compassionate. You have a guy who is grounded by humility. But you also have a guy here who is willing to take the leap. Have you ever been afraid to tell your boss you're having a bad day? Anybody here? You ever been, been afraid to do that? I mean, are you, are you in a position that that would make you uncomfortable to come to your boss and say, not a good one today, boss. Just... 
rough day, been a rough week, you know. Matter of fact, I'd really rather not be here. If you work amongst customer service, don't tell your boss that, okay? Yeah, I probably shouldn't be here. I'm going to treat those customers really bad and probably lose you some business today. You know, I'm just, I'm just, having, a, I'm just having a bad day, boss. Nehemiah was in a strange position. And for him to go before the king and tell the king of a bad day was not merely a matter of job security, all right? Nehemiah was more than a taste tester. Some of you might think, and you would be correct in saying the role of the cupbearer is basically this, die or not die. I mean, it's like like you drink you drink from the cup of the king, the wine of the king, and if you live, then he can drink it. All right, so that's your job. Sounds like a fun one, huh? Now, that, that is kind of the role where it was, but that was not the role that Nehemiah had. There was something much more here. Nehemiah was in a trusted position of influence. He was in the inner circle of the king of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Babylon. He was in a privileged place, and with that position came some written and some unwritten rules, all right? One of those rules was this, don't bring your troubles and your sorrow into the royal chambers. Your troubles are not worthy of being in the presence of the king, so don't bring them. So let's see what happens. Jump into verse 1, chapter 2. Came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that the wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Okay, before moving on, we need to realize the volatile nature of what comes next for Nehemiah. You do not put a sad face on before the king. You put on a happy face. That's what you do. It's part of your job. And the king noticed. The king noticed. Now, this was not an accident. Nehemiah lets it be known. I'd never been sad in the presence of the king before. What had he been praying to God? God, give me compassion in the eyes of this man. You don't just come to the king and start laying everything out. You've got to get his attention. And how did he get his attention? By a sad face. The king says, you're not sick. What's going on here? There's something else going on here, Nehemiah. Now, this is the volatile nature for Nehemiah. What comes next could go very, very wrong for him. All right? This could end with him, the head being removed from the body type of wrong, okay? All right, so let's, let's jump into it and see. Verse 3, he was very much afraid and he said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. It's a good start. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed 
to the God of heaven. It's kind of interesting to me. And what comes to my mind, oh, this comes from, oh, I guess it's just movie day, all right? It comes from the Dark Knight series. I'm kind of a Batman guy, you know? And, and it's like the Joker looking at this really, really tough old guy in one certain spot in these movies. And, and he looks, the Joker looks at him and says, not sure serious, all right? So this is kind of Nehemiah. He's looking at the king thinking, okay, is he really asking me to tell him exactly what I want? I mean, are we, are we serious right here? I know that for a fact because what does he do? He prays. And then he continues on. Verse five. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And it's like, okay, Nehemiah's getting a little gumption here. That went pretty good. So he doesn't stop. So he continues on. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river so that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress. And we know how much timber is worth these days, do we not? Goodness gracious. Just look at the rest of this verse. You talk about some nerve. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house which, which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. It's so funny. Nehemiah prays to God and then he's like, well, here we go. God, see God if you got my back. He says, let me go. Send me away for a time so that I can work here. I, let me leave my position here. Let me go. Give me the authority to go and to rebuild the walls of that city so many, many miles away. And he says, not only that, give me the materials to do this. And guess what happens? Artaxerxes says, okay, sounds good to me. And it's so funny because Nehemiah does not give the credit to Artaxerxes. He gives the credit to God. He says, for the good hand of God was on me. And let me tell you something, folks. When you believe that, that the good hand of God is upon you, you talk about motivation. You talk about a foundation for grit. Goodness. I told you that they had been working on the temple and rebuilding the temple for over a hundred years. A guy by the name of Ezra arrives on the scene, actually an acquaintance of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, Ezra was a priest. And Ezra was working to finish that job. Like I said, over a century in this taking place, how long do you think it took to build those walls? Less than eight weeks. Less than eight weeks. Wow, I would say God is behind this guy. And if you read through the rest of Nehemiah, we're not going to do it today, but I would encourage you, open this up this week. It's just 13 chapters. Man, it is a powerful story of the work of God working through people. 
And if you continue through it, you're going to see a number of things. He goes and, I mean, he turns from, from, from Rooster Cogburn into 007 for a little bit. He has to go kind of incognito and he got to go covert to inspect these walls. Because there's a lot of people around there who do not want those walls rebuilt. And it took courageous leadership. Not only this, he was given the authority from the king as governor of the region. You know what that meant? That meant he could exact from anybody there anything that he wanted. But he didn't do it. When he saw the people, he saw people who had been hurt for years, for decades now. And he did not have it in them to take from them to fulfill his purpose. He did not take advantage of his high position. You can see as you read through this that he had an incredible reliance upon God and upon the law of God. As a matter of fact, the walls are rebuilt. The temple is looking pretty good now. And he has Ezra read the law of God before the people. And people begin hearing this law of Moses. Some of this is kind of new to them. And they begin crying. They begin weeping because of it, it, it's not good news. It's talking about the punishment that is brought upon the people if they don't follow God. And it's like, Nehemiah tells Ezra, just shut it down just for a second. He gets, takes the podium and he says, hey, stop your crying. He said, this is God's law. You'll treat it with respect. Dry up your tears because we're going to do what the law tells us to do. It only took a little less than eight weeks to rebuild those walls, but Nehemiah would stay in Jerusalem for 12 years putting all kinds of work into all of this, all kinds of investment into all of this. Why? For the people who were there, because at the end of 12 years, he didn't even stay. He went back to King Artaxerxes. But guess what? He would return a while later for just again a period of time. And I'll tell you what, when he came back, a few years later, he brought, he brought Rooster Cogburn with him. I mean, he brought grit with him. I mean, he brought the fire, okay? He was cleaning house. Some of the men had begun to marry women of other nations that were around. Nehemiah's like, don't you remember what happened to Solomon? You remember King Solomon? And you remember the road that he put us down when this whole kingdom got split up by his son? He said, you've got to be faithful to God over everyone else. I'm telling you, Nehemiah was a leader who had grit. And when he came back and saw the people not living up to the commitments they had made to God, he said, not on my watch. Look at chapter 13. He, this guy, he starts ripping on some people, all right? He starts pulling their hair out and stuff. Just read it. This guy had grit. He meant business. And he was about honoring God. You know, I don't think grit gets enough credit these days. I truly don't. And when I think about the story of Nehemiah, it reminds me of another man of grit. See if this story sounds familiar to you. Another man who leaves a place of privilege, who leaves privileges behind, who takes upon himself a task that is impossible for anyone to fulfill besides him. Nobody can do it. 
The man 100% had the backing, not of a king, but of God the Father. And this man completes the task through difficulty and through suffering. And he returns to his place, his position of God, which he never really truly left in the first place. But when he returns, there is something more to him. He is now just not God. He is the conqueror of all things related to evil, wickedness, and death. And his name, as you know, is Jesus. It's funny, you, you look at this and you're like, oh, that's quite a jump, preacher. I mean, you jump from Nehemiah 450, 500 years earlier right into Jesus, seriously. That's just what preachers do. Now, there's a little more connection to this than you might be aware of. Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Babel, Zerubbabel. They accomplished a task set before them by God for a reason. When Jesus came around 400 years later, there had to be a place there awaiting him. And that place was Jerusalem. Do you understand that the work of Nehemiah here is paving the way? It's marching towards the Messiah. You see, that's the way God works in this world. And God would bring this world to a place so that the time was at its full for his son to come into this world and to suffer in our place. When we come to our time of communion, folks, we come saying thank you. We come knowing full well that our position without Christ is a position of doom. It's a position of the damned. And that cross was the price that had to be paid to not only remake our reality, but to transform our future. God did it for you. And he did it for me. Crazy thing about it is this. According to the words of Jesus and the teachings and the parables of Jesus. He would have done it all. If it was just one of us who needed it. That's how much our God loves you and loves me. We come to our time of communion. We laser focus our mind on the cross. We laser focus our mind on the fact that the tomb is empty. We laser focus on our our minds on the fact that we serve a risen Savior. A conqueror of death. And we rejoice in a future with Him. For eternity. Because he's coming back for us, folks. This world isn't our home.